Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You You have been been warned. Tom, it's February 19th, 1994. You're working in the emergency room at Riverside General Hospital. Little do you know that your next patient will change your life forever. Welcome to Just Some Podcast. This is Ben. And this is Tom. How are you, man? I am swell. I am enjoying the uh, change up and the lead into the show tonight. It was a little weird because it's not the way we normally do it. But hey, yeah, I wanted to give everybody a little teaser. You know, you grab them with that first 10 seconds of, oh, what's going to happen? But it is. It's going to be one of our, another one of our uh, medical mystery shows, Tom. Since uh, tonight was your idea, why don't you give them a small taste of what they're about to get into? Well, it's a pretty well-known story. And, and again, it's one of those where there's still a lot of conjecture and speculation and we'll probably never know that truth, but we're going to be talking about the toxic lady in California. And if you're not familiar with that, stick around and we'll uh, we'll fill you in on everything that we know. And I'm sure we'll uh, speculate along the way as well. And we'll see what happens. But other than that, man, how's your week been? So we're recording on an odd day. I've actually been on days off. I'm just about to go to work. So my week has been fantastic so far. <laughs> yeah, everything's going great. A little rainy, but Otherwise, everything was awesome. How are things in your neck of the woods? Well, things aren't too bad at all. It's uh, just uh, been busy at the office like like normal, and the kids are getting ready to get out of school, and so they're happy about that. And it is what it is, man. We got uh, Memorial Day just around the corner, and yeah, that's about all I got, man. Yeah. And sometimes that's all there is, but that's the good stuff. Yeah, our little guy here is super excited about summer break, so it's uh, getting to be that time of year. Well, Tom, I mean, we don't want to, uh, you know, take too much time bantering because, well, there's really not much to banter about, but to our social media shadows, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. Find us on the web or www.justsomepodcast.com or email admin at justsomepodcast.com as well. Don't forget to check out all of our other shows under our Just Some Podcast umbrella, which, Tom, by the way, officially trademarked now. Just Some Podcast is a registered trademark with the uh, United States government. So it only took us a year <laughs> from applying to about the time of uh, actually getting it was about a year. But now we're on the grid with the man. He could track yeah, us. Yeah, we are. We are. But it'd be all right. But don't forget to check out our other shows under our Just Some Podcast umbrella. We got Nurse Papa with David. We got Buried Pleasures with Pollyanna. And Tom, let's say I don't know. They want to help us out a little bit. What can they do? They can go to our website. They can scroll down to just about the bottom of the page. They will see a Amazon affiliate link tag. They can click on that before they do any shopping or put anything in their basket. And that way, when they go do all that stuff like they were going to do anyways, that helps out the show and they won't even know we were there. Well, Tom, you ready to jump real quick into our story that you may have missed? I certainly am. So this one would be like, you know, the breaking news. The day that we're recording this, actually the FDA has authorized Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine 
for use in the ages of 12 to 15. Now, previously it was 16 and over. So, you know, let's just do a quick little math now. Let's say that's 12 and up, basically. The FDA reviewed data submitted by Pfizer. The company said at the end of March that a clinical trial that involved 2,260 12 to 15-year-olds showed the vaccine's efficacy is 100% and is pretty well tolerated. And the FDA, quote, it's a relatively straightforward decision. Tom, what are your thoughts? I'm glad. Honestly, my first thought, and trying not to be overly negative, is I just hope we get people to let kids get it because so many people are tinfoil crackpots. And there is a difference to me. Let me make sure I'm clear, though. If you don't want it for logistical reasons, such as we have not done longitudinal studies or whatever else, I am still not agreeing with you. But however, I would say that is a valid question. All right. That's something I understand wanting to know. But it still appears that the vast majority of people that aren't getting it are not getting it for answers such as, I don't want it. B, I don't need it because other people are getting it. C, I don't trust it because it's from the government while they're asking you for other medications made by Big Pharma or sanctioned by the government. But this one they don't like. You know, stuff like that is my sticking point. Like, again, I may not agree with your logic if it's because, well, I want to see longitudinal studies or I want to know, you know, more about the mechanism of action or what happens a year from now, blah, blah, blah. I can at least coherently my brain goes, hey, that makes sense. Like, I understand that thought process. But when someone's like, it's going to put a 5G antenna in my arm so Bill Gates can track me, it when people go, why do I need to learn basic biology in school? I kind of want to point to this and be like, well, most eighth graders could tell you the answers to most of the questions I'm hearing from full-grown adults in the United States of America, who, by the way, I should point out, are allowed to vote at this level of ignorance. They're still allowed to make decisions that affect the entire country. So I have a problem with this process because I feel the same magnitude of order of ignorance that adults are applying to it for adults, they're also going to apply to it for the juveniles, if that makes sense. Like, that's my whole problem. I am totally for it for 12 to 18, but I just have a feeling it's going to be the same process. Well, I've been very pleasantly surprised in this area at the number of people who've wanted to get the COVID vaccine. And I've had a lot of patients that I've sat down and had a heart-to-heart talk with about it. And I'm by no means trying to sell them or sway their decision, but I mean, I'm trying to provide the information and the education for them to make that informed decision on their own. You know, we've administered millions and millions of vaccines, which is great. I do think that you're going to see more kids getting this vaccine as well. And hopefully we can start kind of getting, you know, light at the end of the tunnel here uh, coming up pretty quick. And, you know, if people are interested in wanting to know more, at least about Pfizer and Moderna, you know, we did a couple of episodes on the COVID vaccine with Pollyanna and with Jeff. So, you know, make sure you check those out. And Tom, we're actually going to record here in a couple of days on another podcast called A Second Impression with Jesus. So he's actually a teenager and he wants to talk about topics that are important to teenagers. And so it's kind of made by teenagers for teenagers. And so we reached out and wants to kind of talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. And so we jumped at the chance to try to help provide some education in that area as well. So we're pretty excited about that. Well, I mean, that's what we started this whole podcast about was education and healthcare. obviously more geared towards 
already practicing nurse practitioners or PAs, but anybody is welcome to listen that wants to learn. And I think this is a perfect opportunity. And again, I don't want it to sound like I'm just bashing people that don't want the vaccine. That's honestly not it. I spend a lot of time also educating my patients. And as I tell just about all of them, at some point, it's your body. I'm not going to go home with you. I'm not going to make sure you take your medicines. You know, I'm not going to do this stuff. So if you choose to do this or you choose not to get it, you choose to get it, whatever, that's your choice. All I can do is give you some information and let you make that decision from there. Yep, no, I agree with you. But I was kind of excited to at least see that. I mean, I know that they're still continuing to do more studies and uh, at least, you know, we're getting some good good data and it appears to be at least from what I have been kind of reading through stuff there, that the side effects are pretty well tolerated in that age group as well. So that's a good thing. But hey, man, let's uh, we'll take a short break here. Check out our sponsor. You know, we Tom, we've done a lot of shows as far as like contracts and RVUs and, you know, getting paid as a provider. But sometimes we know we need to look to the future when we're not going to be a provider anymore. And so, you know, you get into that financial planning. So make sure you give Scott a shout out and, uh, you know, see what he has to say. And he can help you out with some financial planning. So uh, listen to the commercial and then we'll be back on the other side. Are you lacking financial direction or need a second opinion? If so, MyNP Advisor is a virtual financial planning practice that focuses on working with nurse practitioners, and they've developed a unique process that evaluates five key areas of your financial life. They call it the Check My Vitals procedure, and for $500, it addresses some of your biggest financial concerns, like, am I saving enough to maintain my lifestyle in retirement? Is my family protected from a catastrophe? Do my investments match my tolerance for risk? Listen, if you have more questions than answers, then you're probably due for a checkup. So click on the link in the show notes to learn more about the five benefits of checking your vitals. And if you're ready to move forward, you can even schedule your appointment directly from that link. Yeah, the link is down in the show notes. It's a great place to start. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRC SPIC. Additional advisory services offered through Premier Financial Partners LLC, neither Royal Alliance, MyNP Advisor, Primary Financial Partner, Justin Podcast, or any other guest or affiliate. All right, Tom, are you ready to delve into another medical mystery? I am. And we had such an overwhelmingly positive response to our first episode that I think I feel pretty confident saying we both knew instantly like, well, we're going to be doing these more often. Yeah, no, I mean, everything that we heard was just people were enamored. Um, I had drug reps to come in and they were like, I had to sit in, in my car even longer just to finish listening to that episode. And then I had to tell my husband about it who downloaded it. So yeah, I mean, it was a great, great episode. Yeah, we got a message from a longtime listener, no time caller, Matt, <laughs> in Seattle, who not only did he talk about how great he thought the episode was, but that he was at the gym and actually had to stop listening because he figured out that he wasn't actually working out because he was so busy paying attention to the episode. So I was like, that's got to be a good sign. So uh, yeah, I am stoked to get another one out. And if people keep responding this well, I think it's going to become a permanent part of the process at Just Some Podcast. Well, it sounds like we need to put out a warning label on the show that, you know, we're hazardous to your health now because, you know, we made him stop working out. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow we made him sicker. Yeah. So. Well, speaking of sacred Tom, so this is the story, as I kind of alluded to earlier, it's the, the story known as kind of the toxic lady. And again, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of conjecture, but we're kind of going to go through the story and we're going to talk about some of the weird stuff. And, and very similar to the Diot Love Pass episode, 
there's a lot of rabbit holes that you can kind of go down to try to figure this out. I think it's important to point this out is, A, you're absolutely correct. There are multiple theories, thought processes, information. The difference, though, between our last episode and this episode is, well, time. This one happened pretty recently. Second of all, it happened in a crowded emergency room. So while Dyatlov Pass, we did have information from their journals and we had the end product, we don't know what happened in the middle versus this time, we know what happened in the middle. We know what happened at the end because there's multiple witnesses. We just don't know how it happened. So it became a, it's an interesting reversal. We know all the information. We know the middle and the end. We don't know the beginning. Yeah. So uh, the story is about a woman by the name of Gloria Ramirez, and she lived in Riverside, California. She had a husband. She had a couple of kids. And, you know, sadly, at the age of 31, Tom, she was diagnosed with a late stage cervical cancer. So about six weeks later, on February 19th, 1994, which was the date that I alluded to at the beginning of the show, she started developing some palpitations and some shortness of breath. So she went to the emergency room like one would expect them to do. Yes, Miss Ramirez was brought in by local EMS wearing t-shirt and shorts, no major complaints registered or reported other than the aforementioned symptoms you already talked about by EMS. They brought her in and she was immediately met by respiratory therapist Maureen Welch and registered nurse Susan Kane. In some of the stuff that I've read, I don't know that there was a specific diagnosis at the beginning based on the, the what I'm reading says that, you know, the heart was beating so fast that the chambers of the heart weren't filling enough, filling up with blood, causing her blood pressure to drop. So, and, you know, and she was very tachycardic. So it almost sounds like she was either in like an AFib or a, v, or a SVT or something along those lines would be my speculation. I didn't see anything that specifically listed. Did you? No, I've never seen a specific run report or, you know, beginning of this process. Again, we know the middle and the end very well. It's the beginning part we have some questions about. However, if you've never worked in an ER, this isn't exactly unusual. 31-year-old Hispanic female coming in with chest pains and shortness of breath, that's a pretty standard, okay, that's what you're getting. So none of this sounds unusual so far. And most ERs, and at least the ERs that I've worked in and been a part of, we have things like chest pain protocols where, you know, someone's going to come in with chest pains. There's going to be kind of a standard set of orders that we're going to do, you know, pull on blood work, give an oxygen, pull an EKG, and just different things like that to try to delineate the cause of said chest pain. Yeah, it's very common in ERs, just for those that aren't in healthcare or those that have never worked in an ER. Most ERs, like Ben said, have a preset of orders so that the staff can immediately start working on the patient and getting things done so that by the time the provider walks into the room, Wheels are in motion. It's a very common aspect. Uh, on her arrival, the staff began trying to, it sounds like they speculation and conjecture. It sounds like they were concerned that maybe she was having a panic attack of sorts. Just based on the medications that it sounded like they, they were given her, they gave her some Valium and some Ativan trying to calm her down, basically. Well, the medicines that I've seen, and, I, and you correct me if you've seen something different, uh, Valium, Ativan, and then they gave her a little bit of lidocaine and a little bertillium to try to slow her heart down a little bit. Correct. Those are several of the ones. And here's an important one that may or may not help us later on in the show, depending on which rabbit hole you believe in, oxygen. 
EMS had already put her on oxygen. It doesn't give me a specified by nasal cannula or non-breather mask or how many liters, but that she had already had oxygen started before arrival. It sounds like her shortness of breath and stuff had gotten worse because that, as the point that they were giving her the benzos and the vertilium, they started using an Ambu bag to try to help assist with her respirations. At that point, again, heart was still in a funky rhythm. So they made the decision to go ahead and try to use a defibrillator on her. Yeah, one of the only like, okay, so I understand the volume, the Ativan, the Versed. I, I understand all the medication we use, but no one, or at least I haven't been able to see an identified rhythm on and which they made the decision to defib. That's one of the only like, eh, I wish I knew why. But honestly, based on the ending of the story, I don't really feel that it's going to make a huge difference. For everyone listening, nothing so far is out of the ordinary. This is a extremely common set of events, set of treatment options, and interventions being done by EMS and the ER staff. Yeah, and like you said, I'm sure there is documentation somewhere of what rhythm it was, but in the scheme of things, as we move forward beyond this, that's kind of, I mean, that'd be like, you know, getting to the end of the movie and then bitching because you didn't know what color the shirt was, you know, on like the main character. Like in the scheme of things, it really doesn't matter much. One of the important things, I think, is that some weird things were already being noted, though, by ER staff, including, like I said, the first two people, Maureen Welch and Susan Kane, who noted both, A, that the patient had a, quote, oily sheen, unquote, to her skin, and all of it. Like, it wasn't a patch of her skin. Her entire body seemed to have this oily sheen. I will say this, again, rabbit holes. One of the information sources, again, not all of them are being equal, said that they said it was a green oily sheen. I've never seen that anywhere else. I've only seen the oily sheen. That's all I've ever seen, too. Yeah. So I think sometimes they try and hype the story, you know, so I'm like, okay. I will say, though, one of the other things that are pretty important, I would assume, is Maureen Welch, who was there when blood was starting to get drawn and everything, said... The patient also had both a, quote, fruity garlic, unquote, sent to her, which I found weird. Like in my head, I'm trying to imagine sweet smelling fruit and garlic. (laughs) It just doesn't make sense. And also later on when they start doing other interventions, which we're going to get to in a second, the scent of ammonia. So it's a very pungent set of odors and circumstances that are starting to separate this patient out from a normal case. And now for our non-medical listeners, you know, the fruity breath may not necessarily be unusual depending on if the patient does have some medical conditions. As our medical listeners know, DKA can cause that kind of fruity, like juicy fruit smelling breath on the patient. And so while it seemed odd, and especially with like a garlicky mix to it, again, probably in the medical brain, not completely out of the ordinary yet. Nothing that I have read from either EMS or the initial personnel in the room would indicate that somebody should have been drawn red flags. So, as you mentioned, Susan Kane was a registered nurse who began drawing blood. She drew a single syringe of the blood and she noticed that something was wrong and, and this is where she started noticing that very strong ammonia odor. And it seemed to be coming from the blood that she was drawing. Correct. They noticed immediately after piercing the skin Both the registered nurse and the respiratory therapist said that they started to get a strong smell of ammonia. And 
after drawing the blood, they passed the syringe to Dr. Gorchinsky, who was also in the room, and all three noticed, and again, you're going to get some slight variations depending on which version of the story that you read, but the most common one is unusual manila colored particles, and I've also seen white colored particles floating in the blood suspended inside of the syringe. Yeah, and at this point, the registered nurse Susan came began to kind of feel faint and just didn't feel well. Another doctor that was there, who was the lead doctor in the ER, Dr. Humberto Ocha, noticed the particles in the blood, couldn't really tell what they were other than they become unusual, or they basically noticed that they were unusual. Nurse Kane stood up, fainted, and Dr. Ocha had caught her. She awoke shortly after she fainted, and she said that her face was burning, and so they placed her on a gurney, and they wheeled her out of the trauma room. Yeah, so when Dr. Ochoa comes in and he starts seeing this, that might be the first red flag is your staff is starting to pass out from being near this person. Okay, clearly something's not right, but in everyone's defense, again, so far we're talking about one person. So other than a few weird circumstances, one person felt sick. Again, nothing too far out of the ordinary to catch any problems. Until. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, there's always the until in these stories. So uh, Dr. Gore Kinsky, I probably butchered that and I apologize. She was the one who had noticed the particles in her blood. She stepped out of the room because she kind of felt a little lightheaded. She felt a little queasy. They asked her if she was all right. And at that point, she was sitting in a chair. She slid out of the chair onto the floor and subsequently passed out as well. So now she was also placed on a gurney and... Says that she woke up a short time later. She was having symptoms of muscle spasms and apnea. And then while this is all going on, Maureen Welch, who was the respiratory therapist who had handled the blood, also fainted. Correct. So now we have Maureen Welch, Susan Kane, Dr. Gorchinsky. Thank you. Are all getting ill, sick, or passing out. So Dr. Ochoa and another nurse, a Sally Balderas, are in the room. Now, it's important also, I think, to note, and there is some fluidity to this, where exactly which thing is happening chronologically is kind of getting lost. Like, each story is a little different, but somewhere around in here, they are still working on the patient, who, by the way, is alert, but not oriented. She's not able to properly answer any questions. Her answers are garbled. And they're very short. So this patient is not doing well and rapidly getting worse. We talked about medical shows in the past. I mean, you were an ER fan, weren't you? Like the television show ER? Yes, the television show, actual show ER, yes. So there's a scene, and maybe we can throw a link in the show notes to it, that I actually use whenever I, because I've taught hazmat classes before. And there's a scene where I use a scene from ER where it was a chemical spill and people come in POV like they're going to. And one of the doctors passes out in the middle of the floor from the exposure off of the clothes of this patient. Now, granted, this is a much different situation, but some of it's very similar in just the fact that, you know, your focus is on the patient, trying to take care of the patient. And now you have staff members that are just dropping around you, which has got to be scary as hell. Number one, for the people who are passing out and then coming to, but for everyone else around them, because at that point, you got to go, what the hell is going on? Yeah, like my day wasn't hard enough dealing with patients who's rapidly tanking, but now I have to worry about my other staff members. Oh, and I don't know what's causing it. So is it going to happen to me next? Like that's a wild set of questions to have to deal with. 
in a situation that's already high stress. Like you're already dealing with a patient who's not dealing well, and now you have to worry about your friends and your own personal safety. So now you've had three staff members drop. So then the other staff in the room kind of started complaining of feeling not well. And so Dr. Ocha, who was the lead ER doctor, obviously was figuring out that something, you know, some shit ain't right. <laughs> that board certification came in yeah. real handy. So <laughs> He's like, hmm, perhaps something is wrong. 23 of my 27 staff people are getting sick. I think something bad is happening. So he ordered uh, all the staff and all the patients to evacuate the emergency room. They moved into the parking lot and they continued to try to see patients out there as well as, you know, the people who the staff that had been affected by what had happened in the trauma room. I would like to uh, make a short intervention here. Sure. So in one of the many videos I watched researching this, two people who admittedly they were like they have no medical training or anything else. So it was kind of funny listening to their perspective on a lot of this. They said something that at first a lot of people might think makes sense, but I think Ben and I need to clear some of this up, is they said when Dr. Ochoa declares the internal disaster, they moved everybody out of the ER. And these two guys were like, wouldn't it have been easier just to move the one person out of the ER instead of the entire ER out away from the one person? And that does sound like a very smart idea. However, when you're dealing with an internal disaster and Ben was a disaster preparedness expert. So we're going to get some good perspective here. If you don't know what is happening, you are likely going to cause more danger and exposure by moving them all around. And we already don't know what's exposed than it is to get the people that we know aren't exposed away from the danger. Yeah, no, I would agree with you 100%. You know, clearly, we don't know what is going on at this point. We know that Trauma Room 1 or, or Trauma Room 2 or whatever, I think it was Trauma Room 1 is the stuff that I was reading. Uh, I never actually saw any. Clearly, whoever was in this room has been affected by something in this room. Now, the concern would be, if you think like a chemical spill, if you take that patient and you wheel her through the emergency room out the back door, are you exposing everybody else throughout the ER to whatever is potentially causing the problem. Whereas, like you said, it's much easier to let's focus on moving everybody away from the area that's affected as opposed to trying to move the affected area. So I would agree with you 100%. Yeah. You don't know what it is. You don't know if it's airborne. You don't know if it's a liquid. We don't want this splashing around the hallways because now the hallway is out of commission. There's a lot of reasons why it's much safer. It's not exactly easier, but it's much safer for everybody involved to move them away from the exposed area. And it's important to understand that trauma centers and, you know, likewise, other hospitals, they run drills. Like, that's why we design these drills. And they are, and I will tell you, as a person that organized, planned them, and ran them, I know everyone bitches. And they hate them. And it's a pain in the ass and nobody likes to go through them until the day happens and you've practiced it a couple times. Even if it's not down pat, the staff will remember, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to grab the orange cart and get the exposure equipment and move people out. And so that's the reason why we practice is for situations like this where you don't know what's going on, but it's clearly affecting the hospital staff, and is now putting patients in danger. So here was where I think things start to, I mean, okay, things are weird already. I think we've identified things are weird. Yes, things are weird. 
But here's where it seems a little odder for me, I guess. So there was a small crew that were still in that room that were not affected at all, including Dr. Ocha. And they decided to stay behind and kind of as a skeleton crew to continue taking care of this patient who's still tanking. And that's a shit feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's four of us. Because now you're down to just a few people and you're trying to, you know, do heroic measures. And yeah, so they attempt CPR, they defibrillate her even more. And then at 8.50 p.m., she was declared dead. I just want to point out, she arrived at the hospital approximately 8.15 so 35 minutes to go from alert talking to pronounced dead is actually very fast. I know in television shows, they do like two rounds of CPR and they crack a chest tube for some reason that I can't ever figure out why. You know, they do all this stuff and then it's just over. But in real life, codes can last quite a while. So for her to come in, arrive, get the basic testing and then tank that fast is pretty quick. Well, not only that, but you got to remember everything that we talked about up to this point, including several staff members passing out, several staff members have to be placed on gurneys and wheeled out, and evacuating the emergency room all happened basically in the span of the time that you've been listening to our show. And this took 35 minutes for this entire case. So, yeah, that's how fast. So, I mean, multiple, multiple moving parts. I mean, you know, and, you know, one of the things I used to love about the emergency room is it looked chaotic to people who didn't know what the ER was. But for us, it was another day at the office and it was a very controlled chaos. One of the nurses that I worked with when I was a brand new green nurse, he told a patient that one day, you know, he's like, this is, you know, for you, I understand this is your emergency and I, and I 100% respect that. But for us, this is another day at the office. We do this every day, you know. And so for us, this is a very controlled chaos. And if we ran around like chickens with their head cut off, not a damn thing would get done. But still, I just think 35 minutes, your controlled chaos has went to absolute shit at this point. I mean, it's, it has to be just pandemonium. Just chaos now. Yeah, half my staff is on the floor. The other half is outside with people because we don't know what's inside, which is where I'm still at probably. This sucks. That's what I'd be thinking if I was Dr. Ochoa right now. Yeah. Is everything about this sucks. So they've declared her you know, time of death 35 minutes after she arrived. So they move her body into an isolation room because, you know, they're trying to be very cautious about whatever's going on with this lady or what had happened with this lady. One of the two that had moved her, and that's where that name that you had said earlier first popped up for me, was the Sally uh, Balderas. She became ill, vomiting, and again, has complaints of the skin burning. Isn't she the one that passed out as well? I believe so, yes. Yeah, so not only does Sally have the burning, the illness, she passes out, and when she awakens, has now lost control of both of her upper extremities. So right and left arm are not working. So now we're not getting just sick anymore. Now we're starting to get, you know, neurological effect on top of illness. So in the continued chaos, they call in the Riverside County Hazmat Team which is 100%. I would have done that too. They examined that room according to notes, top to bottom, examined everything they could. They found no leaks of chemicals, no dangerous gases, and they even made a notation that there was no evidence that anything had even been amiss. Everything showed is completely clean. And just because this will play a small factor later on, I would like to point out that three other times that I am aware of, that Riverside County Hospital had actually got safety violations 
for like either like a chemical loose. And and again, I know it sounds terrible because you're gonna be like, oh my God, this woman just died. But honestly, the chemical spill could have been who knows what. It was probably self-reported. But the point is, is that they've had a chemical spill. They'd had a sewage leak in the hospital, a couple other things. So you know, these guys are looking for stuff and they found it all the other times. So there's no reason to believe that the hazmat team or the safety personnel working for the hospital wouldn't be well aware of a substance. Like they work in that hospital. If they found something that wouldn't, shouldn't be there, they would know it immediately. So the fact that they can't find something isn't, that's weird. Like that should be pretty obvious that there should be some type of biologic or airborne substance causing people to be getting sick. So in the aftermath, 23 staff members who worked in or near that room ended up feeling sick. Five were hospitalized. And, um, you know, it says for those who weren't admitted, most of their symptoms were very just kind of vague, muscle spasms, dizziness, nausea, burning sensations of the skin. This goes to break down even more. So uh, Sally Balderas, she was hospitalized for 10 days. She was suffering from episodes of apnea. Dr. Gorchinsky, she got the worst of it. She spent two weeks in ICU. She also had periods of apnea, but she also, and this is just odd to me, according to reports, she also developed hepatitis, pancreatitis, and avascular necrosis in her knees. Yeah, lack of blood flow to your bone uh, with sudden onset is not normal. The chain of events that led up to Dr. Gorchinsky going from perfectly normal and treating patients in the ER to becoming a patient in the ER happened in a 35-minute span of time. And not only that, but whatever affected her affected her respiratory system, her liver, her pancreas, and her circulatory system. Quickly. While we're going to talk about theories, the main one doesn't really seem to hold a lot of water with me with evidence like that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about the theories here shortly because I can feel my Tomness channeling because that <laughs> irritates me a little bit. So the investigation found that basically those who were within close proximity to Gloria Ramirez uh, were most affected. Uh, those who handled her blood were the sickest. So the coroner's office performed an autopsy in a sealed environment. They collected blood tissue. The results of the examination and any subsequent testing have never been made public. Of note, though, it does state whatever they found, they soon began request help from outside sources. Yes, they made multiple requests to, we might have to explain this a little bit, national laboratories. So there are plenty of laboratories, even in the city, wherever you're at right now. And for our foreign listeners, this might work slightly different where you're at. But in America, there are several large foundational, what we call national laboratories, that are generally recognized regionally as the leading experts. So if the federal government, the state government has something that they need independently taken care of, verified, the people with the equipment, the expertise, the time are at one of these national laboratories. So the California Department of Health and Human Services gets a hold of one of these national laboratories and is like, hey, something weird is going on and we need you guys to help us figure it out. So April 29th, 1994, the coroner's office officially announces the cause of death for Gloria Ramirez. Her official cause of death, as listed on the death certificate, is kidney failure related to cervical cancer. 
Now, you know, it, it talks about how they didn't make any mention of any of the strange effects on the hospital staff. And I can understand that because the coroner's office is not really their place. They're trying to focus on what killed the patient. And the death certificate is not going to say, hey, the patient died of kidney failure related to a cervical cancer and she made a bunch of people sick. They focused on what they were supposed to focus on. Yes. And the evidence that they had said, hey, this lady had multi-organ dysfunction, primarily kidney shutdown was due to cervical cancer, which is the direct mechanism of injury leading to her death. So again, there's a lot of people think they understand how death certificates work in the COVID era, but they clearly don't. Because like Ben just said, that corner is focusing on what killed this individual patient and any unusual circumstances that may or may not have made it seem like a criminal case versus a civil case. So that's where we're at. Everything from what they're saying is straightforward, except for, you know, we also know multitudes of people got sick. There's a lot of speculation and conjecture about some things that happened and we'll talk about later as far as the coroner's office. All I'm saying is that in this particular instance, as far as the cause of death, that's not unusual. Now, again, as Ben pointed out, we're going to talk here very shortly about why we have feelings about how they came to that conclusion. We're just trying to point out this is a very common thing to happen. So like you mentioned, Tom, the California Health and Human Services Agency. Mm -hmm. So their point was, you know, the cause of death has been released. It's normal. The hazmat team ruled out there was no gases. There was nothing like that. So their focus was on who, you know, the staff that got sick, rightfully so, as it should be. They focused on things that, I don't know, maybe they were just missing the forest for the trees, or maybe like, you know, I say when we talk about conspiracy theories, you know, you're trying to apply logic to an illogical situation. I don't know. I can't speak for them, but I think their findings are bullshit. I'm going to tell you that right now. So they claimed the women on staff were more strongly affected. Uh, the people who skipped dinner felt more sick than those who had eaten. And, uh, you know, they had examined the blood taken after the event from the actual staff members and found no signs of poisoning. So, September 2nd, 1994, they announced their findings. Mass sociogenic illness. Mass hysteria. According to the California Health and Human Services Agency, no one in that ER got sick. They smelled a bad odor. They freaked out. And that's what happened. Yeah, there's some problems with this. Now, now, granted, I have never met the people we've talked about, but I find it hard to believe that double-digit amounts of ER workers and experienced hospital staff somehow lost their shit because of one patient, and that affected them so strongly that they developed hepatitis and pancreatitis due to their imagination. The human mind is a very powerful tool. Yes, it is. But I do not readily accept <laughs> that it caused that level of destruction. It's hard for my brain to accept that that's a realistic possibility. I refuse to accept it. If these were high school kids, if these were elementary school kids, if these were mechanics, maybe, maybe there was some mass hysteria. Okay, you're talking about highly trained Individuals who deal with literally life and death every day, 23 of them who are highly trained working in the ER, holding legs back on that have been amputated and shit like that, that are doing chest compressions on two-year-olds, and you're telling me that it was just mass hysteria. 
of these individuals, I call bullshit. First of all, completely agree. And then when you look, and I'm going to kind of lead us from there into conspiracy theory number two, is so when people are like, well, what about this? What about that? So let me point out one simple fact. Okay, so we're going to be talking about something called dimethyl sulfate here in a second. It has 20 main known side effects of exposure. The 23 people that Ben just talked about each shared at least one and some of them up to 19 of the 20 side effects of dimethyl sulfate. And I get there's flaws with this theory as well. I'm just saying we know there's a chemical substance. We know exposure to a chemical substance such as dimethyl sulfate will have up to these 20 side effects. And some of the people had 19 of the 20 side effects. You don't suppose that it could, in fact, be exposure to a chemical substance. Although, again, <laughs> just conspiracy. I'm just theory. laying it out there. And as we'll discuss, it's hard to replicate. So the coroner's office reached out to the LLNL, which is the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, like you mentioned earlier. They examined her remains and they found a compound called dimethyl sulfone. The coroner's office didn't do much with that. And so the LLNL just kind of moved on with their life until the mass hysteria announcement came out. And the ER staff, a little angry, rightfully so. So they reach out to the LLNL and they're like, hey, just not adding up. They uh, re-examined the analysis that they had done because, of course, at this point, we're talking months and months later, the body's been buried. And the original report of dimethyl sulfone was incorrect. The chemical was actually dimethyl sulfoxide, which is DMSO. It's important to note that DMSO is not unusual. It has been around since the 1960s. It was widely used through the 60s and 70s by athletes as like an asper cream. And it sort of lost favor. I believe the FDA banned it in the early 80s, late 70s as a topical application just because there just wasn't a lot of anything backing up its use for muscle relaxant. However, DMSO is not illegal and is still easily available as a degreasing agent for industrial products. However, it is extremely important to note that the percentage of DMSO in the creams used for pain relief were extremely small in the 60s and 70s and can be up to 99% in some of the industrial degreasing agents that are available now. So we're not talking, it's the same chemical compound, but when you're talking relatively, I think it was like 7% in a cream to 99% made to take grease off of steel, <laughs> that is a vastly different chemical property you're dealing with. So the LLNL and uh, their organization began kind of formulating a theory. And I will say in everything that I researched, Tom, the theory that she was using DMSO to treat her pain of cervical cancer has been denied by her family. Is it possible that she was doing it without their knowledge? Maybe. I don't know. I'm just, in full disclosure, it's been denied by her family. It has been denied, but it's also found tracely on her body. There's back and forth, yeah. The theory. So DMSO, whether she was ingesting it, rubbing it on her skin, whatever she was doing, could have potentially explained the oily skin and the fruity, garlicky smell. A DMSO can change into dimethyl sulfone, which is DMSO2. The only difference there, obviously, is the second oxygen molecule. 
So the speculation was that potentially by them giving oxygen to her, they had potentially changed the DMSO in her body to DMSO2. They did find DMSO2 mixed with a blood substitute LR at room temperature could cause the formation of the crystals, which could have appeared in her blood as mentioned previously. Yes, this may be the same thing that Dr. Gore Chinsky or Maureen Welch or the other nurse whose name was Susan Kane. Again, this is one of those things where we have four, Dr. Ochoa, Dr. Gorchinski, Maureen Welch, and Susan Kane all independently saw and described these crystals suspended in the blood inside the syringe. So there's not a question. No one's saying that that's not happening. So again, it goes back to this, it harkens this hysteria theory, but we know some of the things that they talked about weren't hysterical. Like, we have it. So, DMSO can change into DMSO2. With the application of oxygen, which she had. The other thing that becomes interesting with this chemical compound is dimethyl sulfate, which is DMSO4, four oxygens. This DMSO4 is actually a toxic nerve gas and has been used or was trialed, I'm sorry, as a chemical weapon in war. And when they tested it... Those who had been exposed to it, their symptoms were nearly identical to the 23 staff members that complained of symptoms that night working on Gloria Ramirez. And that's what I was trying to talk about earlier is, so we have a chemical compound with certain known side effects that match what was happening at the time. That's a pretty big kernel of truth to have to deal with. But here's where the concerns of the theory may kind of fall apart. We have known chemical reactions from DMSO to DMSO2. There is no known process in which DMSO2 can change into DMSO4. Well, I saw with the possible application of electrical current, that's when they were theorizing. There's no specific known process that we know of outside of speculation where that chemical reaction can occur. So LLNL theorized that maybe it was a low temperature, maybe it was an electrical shock from the defibrillator, somehow caused the chemical to change from DMSO2 to DMSO4. However, again, this is kind of where things fall apart. They've never been able to replicate that in any scientific or laboratory test. Which, you got to admit, that's a pretty big dagger in the heart if you're banking all your money on the uh, dimethyl sulfoxide course of action is the fact we have to take that into account, that nobody can make it happen. We theorize that's what's going on. But again, this is science. And science is saying, man, we've tried this. We've tried it left, right, up, down, backwards, forwards. We can't make it happen. So it seems like one of those things you just want to reach out and go, it's clearly here. We can't good conscience say that's what it is. We can't make it happen. And there are detractors that say no. The coroner's office said, hey, you know what? It's possible. As that was the most likely explanation. However, organic chemists in the field said no, no. It vaporizes at 370 degrees. There are records of people being exposed to DMSO4, but their symptoms took hours to appear, not minutes. And somehow the gas, if DMSO4 was present and caused these symptoms, it dissipated completely so that there was no trace for the hazmat team to find. Because remember, they checked everything, talked about them, everything was clean. There is that. It's also important 
to note, I think, when you're dealing with the dimethyl sulfone, the middle component of this, okay? So, again, you had the DMSO had to be present, which we know was present. Well, I should say we know. We have strong evidence to suggest that it was present, even though the family is saying it's not. That, we believe, turned into the dimethyl sulfone, but that should be around in your body for three days or less. And we were taking blood at the time she was in there. So if that was definitely going to be present, which it has to be present for the dimethyl sulfate, we don't have any evidence from her blood or any substance, you know, collected that has that chemical present. So again, as much as this fits neatly, as we found out with Diet Love Pass, that doesn't always make it right. because. If that was present, somebody would have evidence of it. So the one thing that explains it all, we can't recreate and we can't prove was even there. Yeah, the speculation is expounding on this theory that she had taken so much DMSO or used so much DMSO that it actually is what exacerbated her kidney failure. She basically just had so much DMSO in her system that her kidneys just couldn't get rid of it. And... Assuming the oxygen and the electrical current or whatever the case may be to change it to DMSO4, if there was such a large amount of DMSO in her body, maybe that's what caused the quick and acute symptoms experienced by the staff. But again, it's all conjecture and speculation. I thought it was really interesting, and I don't know why this just popped in my head, but when I was doing the research, when this story came out, everybody thought it was so interesting that they actually turned this into an episode of X-Files. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So, I mean, this is maybe not as a large amount of information as the Dialove Pass, but this is certainly something, if you start looking into this on Google, I hope you have a couple hours to burn because you're going to be going down a lot of rabbit holes of speculation, which I think we should tie it up with our final theory and then some of the odd facts that happened after. And that will kind of put the bow on it. Like, as if this wasn't strange enough, there's a few more things that ended up happening. I want to just touch briefly on one more conspiracy theory. It's comical to me, and, and it, I don't know. Okay, then that's not the same one. I was going to talk about the family. No, no, I was going to get there. I was going to swing back around to the family. There's another conspiracy theory out there, Tom, that staff members of the hospital uh, were basically running in a meth lab. And they were smuggling the meth out in the IV bags. Now, somehow, because, you know, it's a conspiracy theory, and you try to apply logic to an illogical situation, uh, somehow that IV bag got switched with an IV bag that was meant for a patient. So the ER staff didn't know this, and so they hooked it up to her to give her fluids, but it's actually meth. So then somehow the meth in the IV bag, the fumes from it is what seeped into the room, when they drew her blood. Aye. Now, the hospital, their administration, you know, they didn't want any bad press about this, this underground meth lab and how this. So they covered the whole thing up. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Now, I will say there's absolutely no evidence to back up anything in that theory whatsoever, including the fact that exposure to meth is probably not going to cause some of the symptoms that we mentioned earlier. I can tell you 100% right now, it's just exposure to methamphetamine will not cause any of this. As a police officer and an ER nurse and an ICU nurse that have worked on people with 
actively like they're holding methamphetamines. They have just injected methamphetamines. It's been in their body for several days. I've done plenty of IVs, casts, been involved in intubations, bronchoscopies, all sorts of stuff. Guess what? None of that stuff happened to any of that. Let's hold on. Before we even do that, let's back this train up just a little bit. So let's assume for just a second that there is a meth lab in this ER at this hospital. Or in the hospital somewhere, yeah. Okay. And that they're putting the product in IV bags. Well, first of all, a lot of the times, depending on which method of methamphetamines used and, and a couple other various factors, methamphetamine isn't exactly a clear substance. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, and again, there are clear all right, I'm just saying not always. So, okay, let's say it's one of the clear ones, okay? So it is a clear one, and they're putting in bags for distribution, except for if you're going to do that, we keep the IV bags in the hospital, and they stay within the hospital. It's not like I hand you a bag of IV fluid and tell you to go home and hook yourself up. So if that's how they were moving it to sell it, they're making themselves conspicuous by putting it in the only bag that is going to arrive at the hospital and then stay at the hospital the entire time. Like, there's no transferring out of IV bags. There's only transferring in of IV bags. And I can't speak for 1994 because I wasn't a nurse at that time, but any IV bags that I've ever dealt with have been individually sealed. Yes. And then you have to pop the top that was placed in the factory into it. Now, you can inject medication into it. I'm not saying you can't because, I mean, obviously we, we can have potassium or whatever we need to do. Yeah, like one squirt of meth per one liter of, like, your margins and overhead costs are going to go through the roof at this rate, and it's really not economical to even have a meth lab at this point. I'm wondering if it wasn't just the people complaining or the, the, the ammonia smell, which, I mean, if anybody who, again, what's your law enforcement experience, some meth labs have that very strong cat piss ammonia smell. Well, and again, that goes back to method. So if you use like a P2P method, probably not going to be very strong. But if you use what they call like the Nazi method, um, there's a couple other names for it where they use the anhydrous ammonia, you're going to get a distinct biting ammonia smell. Like that is not a joke. However, again... I don't understand why they would be hooking up patients with bags of IVs with methamphetamine. Never mind her symptoms. The patient would have had a disastrously different set of outcomes if you were running a bolus of methamphetamine into her vein. And I suspect, I don't know, if you're bolusing methamphetamine into her system, maybe that would have been reported on the I don't know autopsy. Yes, where they would have found it. So... I think we could safely tell whoever thought of this one to kiss our ass because that's just not realistic whatsoever. We need to wrap up here. Um, so the family, they dispute the LLNL's findings. They said that she never took DMSO. They wanted to have their own autopsy done, which is their right. Here's where things with the coroner's office gets a little shady, I think. I don't know. And again, maybe it's just a rabbit hole that I've been down now. So her body wasn't released for two months after her death. Some of that's normal. I mean... They don't hold the body, usually, as far as my experience when I send patients for autopsy. They don't necessarily hold the body for that long, but, you know, they hold the tissue samples and things of that nature. This being an unusual case, maybe they did. I don't know. However, once the family received the body two months later, the tissue was badly decayed, which means that it wasn't apparently refrigerated or wasn't refrigerated well. 
The independent pathologist that the family hired found that her heart and several other organs were completely missing. And then whatever remained seemed to have some cross-contamination with fecal matter. And that's a tough one. That's a toughie to explain. Yeah. And what is it with our stories and having like missing body parts? Ugh, I don't know. So far, we're running a uh, we're running a racket on missing body parts. But at least again, well, I shouldn't say that. We knew she had those parts, and I know that that is not unusual in an autopsy for them to be removed. However, as you have already said, they do keep tissue samples and or the organs themselves, you know, in some shape or form for further investigation if needed before a definitive, you know, set of findings is made. Obviously, in this case, if you are the coroner who decided, you know, hepatic toxins were involved in this, I'm going to get rid of the liver. Mm, that's a piss poor choice, my friend. Or, hey, she might have had, you know, cardiac issues. Let's get rid of her heart. The problem is, is it does sound shady. Yeah, very shady. Is it shady because of piss poor professionalism? Possibly. But unfortunately, what it does do is it opens the door to make it look like the men in black showed up and had their way. The other thing that, that adds to that is the lead investigator from the coroner's office who worked on the case originally committed suicide about a month after uh, starting the investigation into her death. So again, whether that had anything to do with it or not, it adds a little bit of fuel to the conspiracy fire. Yeah, vital body parts are missing. They didn't properly, you know, keep the remains. Samples are missing. The people working on it are ending up dead. And again, go back to the very fact she was alive, she died, and 23 other people got sick just being near her body. There's a lot going on. So wrapping up, Tom, the LLNL findings, they remain a theory that we could not prove in a laboratory. The official explanation for what happened by the California Health and Human Services Agency is mass hysteria. The coroner's office never made results of their testing public. Key pieces of evidence, like a syringe of her blood, have never been found. And then organs are missing and or contaminated with feces. Wrapping up, that's where we're at currently with this. So what do you think, Tom? <laughs> What's your conjecture? Okay. First of all, I don't believe the mass hysteria. Now, having said that, could I see one or two people be malingerers or something like that out of this? It's possible, right? I'm not going to say there was zero hysteria. What I'm going to say is I don't believe that 23 people conspired to have the same symptoms and that several of them were hospitalized, including one for 10 days who then suffered organ damage based on she thought that was what's going to happen. Because... I know that every provider listening to this story has treated people that were dead set that something was wrong with them. And if your mind was powerful enough to give you cancer, we'd be losing patients to cancer every goddamn day. Every day. And so, you know, I read WebMD. I got elbow cancer. It said if I had elbow pain for five minutes, I had elbow cancer. Like, if your brain could just switch on that type of neoplasm, you know, like, you know, or it was strong enough to make you have liver damage because you thought you had it, 
that would be completely different. So going back to it, I think there was clearly a biological agent involved. Now, was it dimethyl sulfate? I don't have that answer. It definitely seems like there was some kind of biological agent. Why or how is the more pressing question because she was a 31-year-old Hispanic female with cervical cancer. She wasn't like she was working at Los Alamos, you know, National Laboratory where they're working on secret weapons or something like that. There was nothing about her past that would indicate that she was a person of interest. I think this is a case of there was something there. Somehow we missed it or we just weren't looking for it. Like maybe they should have brought a Geiger counter. I don't know. But I think while there was some possible negligence or mishandling, that combination of mishandling key aspects plus not knowing all the information has created this perfect storm where people saw it. It's like a magic show. They know they saw it, but they just can't explain it. Like, that's where we're at. Now you're trying to explain it, yeah. I really, really, really think that there was a biological agent involved, but what and how and why, I just don't think we'll ever know. And I would agree with you. I think the symptoms match a biological exposure of some sort. Who's to say what it was? I don't know. I keep saying biological, chemical, biological, one of those two. Yes, a, a reaction to something in that room. Most likely her blood for whatever reason. Now they've been able to replicate that. I don't have a good answer for that. Could the oxygen have changed DMSO into DMSO2? And could the electricity have changed DMSO2 into DMSO4? Like you said, it's going to be one of those we're never going to know. And you know we will probably never see another case like this again of just the perfect storm of weird shit to happen. But it makes for interesting podcasting, I guess. So what are your thoughts on The Toxic Lady? Email us or reach out to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all Just Some Podcasts website, www.justsomepodcast.com. Email us. Tell us your thoughts on The Toxic Lady. Was she toxic? Was it mass hysteria? Admin at justsomepodcast.com. Well, Tom, we'll wrap up another medical mystery show, dude. And uh, again, this was like when we decided we were going to do another one. I, this was the one I was like, this is what we're doing. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. As soon as we got done and we decided, he's like, I already got it. I'm like, oh, okay. So, and it's a good one. I've heard of it. But in researching it, you're like, wow. Okay, wait a second. There's a lot more weirdness to this than I ever anticipated. Well, and I didn't even know, I mean, I knew the, the general story of people getting sick around her blood until I researched it for this show. I didn't know about the whole coroner's office and organs missing and shit like that. That's just, again, could it just be shitty work? Probably, maybe, but it still makes you go, hmm. Yeah, I don't care how inept you are. Like I said, when it's like, huh, it seems that she died from liver, kidney, and heart dysfunction. I just throw those away. Yeah, I don't need those ones, but I'll keep her spleen. Like, what? What is going on with this? Like, uh. so there's a lot going on there. But uh, yeah, if you know of anything that you would like us to cover or you think is interesting or if you just have some comments about the show, we'd really like to hear it. So please get a hold of us. Yeah. If you know some something medical that you want us to deep dive into and try to solve the world's problems one hour at a time, <laughs> then let us know. I'm all and about we'll, that. Yeah. And we'll research it for you. On those notes, man, get your vaccine, wear your mask, wash your damn hands. Have a great week. Hey, everybody, stay safe out there. Practice swearing just to pass the time. Lately, I see why I am alone. 
have known. 